On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Thank you, Ben, for reading that passage. We've been sitting in that passage, if you've been with us for the last number of weeks, uh, we've been meditating on this passage. And one of the perks of meditating on these passages for a long time, like we have been, is there's certain things that kind of jump out at you that you might not have caught notice of the very first time, or the second, or even the third time that you've noticed. And one of those phrases is one that I want to spend some time thinking about this morning together. And that phrase is found in Luke 10, verse 29. It's the phrase, he wanted to justify himself. Statements like a window into the heart of this man, this expert in the law, into a window that actually turns into a mirror for us. So this man, this expert in the law, stands up and he wants to test Jesus. He wants to trap Jesus. He wants to expose Jesus as the fraud that he believes him to be. And yet what happens is by the end of it, he is the one whose heart is exposed. He is the one who turns to justifying himself. He wants to defend himself. He wants to prove himself to be not guilty. He wants to vindicate himself. It's the same thing that you and I do when we show up late to a meeting or to a, a lunch appointment, right? You walk in the restaurant, you walk in the room, and it, and it just comes right out of your mouth. You don't even have to think about it. Hey, sorry I was late. Uh, you know the kids. Couldn't get the kids ready this morning. Somehow it's always the kids. Or it's traffic, right? Uh, nobody knows how to drive in this area. You know, we just find something. It's a school bus. There's some excuse that comes. Some reason is which to justify ourselves because what we want to do is we want to validate ourselves. We feel that tension and we want to kind of get away from that tension, that, that guilt, that shame, that whatever you want to call it. And that's exactly what this expert in the law is doing. But what's brought him to the place where he feels the need to be in this posture of self-defense? What brings him to this point where he starts to justify himself by asking the question which leads to the parable? This, par this whole story, right, starts with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, how can I be made right with God? How can I know that God and I are good? Because that's exactly what we're designed for. That is eternal life, is to be with God. As humans made in the image of God, we were created to be in this intimate relationship with him as friends, not enemies, right? 
That is eternal life. And Jesus turns that question back on the man and says, well, you know the law. What does the law say? How do you read it? And the expert answers his own question by quoting accurately, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, that's right. Do this and you will live. Do this. Obey the law. You'll have eternal life. It's not enough, Mr. Expert in the law, to just know what the law says, but it's doing the law. Obey it. And the man starts to squirm, right? Starts to justify himself. He does that because he knows the Bible. He's an expert in it. He knows the Old Testament. He knows the expectation that God has placed on man to be in his presence. He knows where the bar has been placed, what man must do. He knows, for example, Psalm 15. Psalm 15 starts off with this question, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? In other words, who inherits eternal life? Who gets to be with God in his tent as his friend on his mountain? The answer goes on to say, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts, who does not change their mind, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe from, against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. They can have confidence that they can be on God's mountain in his tent. The one who does these things. The one who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their mind, and who loves their neighbor as themselves every single time. Do this, and you'll have eternal life. Besides, the expert in the law knows that the way that the Bible talks about the law is it talks about it singular, not plural. See, if you were to read the Old Testament law, you would find that there are over 600 commands that God gives, but yet the way that the Bible talks about them is not in laws plural, but in the law. Here's why it's important. Let me try and find a way we can kind of picture this a little bit. If you're in the construction world or if you've done any home renovation, um, Think about it as the difference between hardwood floor and sheet vinyl linoleum. I used to work, before I was on staff here at Shelton, I worked for a family in the church who owns a flooring business. And among other things, we installed different types of flooring. And one style of flooring would be what I'm standing on now, this hardwood floor, which comes in boxes with many different pieces. And so as you're installing it, if you damage a piece, it's not really that big of a deal. You just take that board, throw it away, put a new piece in. You replace it. It's not that big a deal. But the other type of flooring would be something like sheet vinyl or linoleum, which is one giant roll, one sheet that you unroll, and you get one chance to cut it. And if you break it, if you cut it wrong, it's worthless for that job. That's the way that the Bible talks about the law. Listen to the way that James reflects on it in James chapter 2. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, which is one example of breaking that law, well, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. 
See, the point isn't there, there isn't just a number of laws that you can break some and keep some. If you break one, one part of it, at any time, you've become a lawbreaker. One law. Do you see how high that raises the bar? It does the exact opposite of what you and I try to do on a regular basis. What we try to do is we try to take God, we try to take his holiness, we take his law, his standard, his expectations, and we break it down into bite-sized, manageable pieces that we feel good about ourselves. We separate out the laws. We don't talk about it as one. We talk about breaking some rules. That way we can think about all the ones we've kept. Well, I did really good on these commands. I'm just going to kind of choose to ignore some of the ones I break more often kind of have this mentality, even if we don't think we have it, there's this subtle mentality in this that goes, well, I'm keeping more than I'm breaking, so that's it's good, right? We compare ourselves often not against the, the law of God, but against other lawbreakers. Well, how are you doing at neighboring? How are you doing at whatever? Well, better than so-and-so. Makes me feel a little good about this, right? Feeling pretty good about myself. The problem is, All of these are ways of lowering the bar, lowering the expectation. The difficulty is that Jesus never lowers the bar once. In fact, all he ever does is raise the bar to a higher place. He makes it more difficult. If you have time today, make time today, read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Here's a couple of pictures of what Jesus does in Matthew 5 on the famous Sermon on the Mount. He says things like this, "'You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder.'" But he actually goes on to say, don't even hate your brother. Don't curse your brother. It's not just about not murdering them. He takes it up a level. He goes on and says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery with her. Takes it up a level. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Do you catch what he's doing? He doesn't lessen it. He actually makes the law of God more out of reach, more impossible, more difficult. Are you starting to get a little bit of a sense as to why the man started to justify himself? Jesus has trapped him. He's brilliant. But his trap is always a trap of love. Because when Jesus traps this man, and when he often does that to us, He's doing it as an act of love that says, listen, I don't want you to live in a lie. I don't want you to be deceived by what the reality is. I want you to be able to see in, into your own heart as to what is actually going on. And so he turns to the expert in the law and he says, how do you inherit eternal life? Well, you know. Are you doing the law? Are you loving your neighbor? Remember I said that this window into his heart becomes a mirror to us. Because think about this for a second. Let this be a question that is turned towards you. Bill asked it earlier. We've been talking about neighboring for uh, two months in this series, focusing on loving our neighbor. And the question is, how are you doing with that? Are you loving your neighbor? Are you loving your neighbor as much as you love yourself? Every time? In every situation? Have you been as gracious with your children when they've made mistakes as you are gracious with yourself when you make a mistake? What about the needs of your coworkers? Are you you aware of them? Are you as quickly aware of their needs as you are of your own? And are you working as passionately and expediently to fix and to meet those needs, to serve them? Are you doing that with the same passion of which you meet your own needs? 
talked last week about just taking small steps. And maybe you're sitting here going, I had a lot of chances and just let them go right through. Do you feel like you're on trial now? You feel like you're, you're being challenged here? Can you, can you feel the temptation to justify yourself? Can you hear those excuses coming? Well, I, I didn't have time. I was in a hurry. Um, my world's just crazy. <laughs> you know, my schedule. You should see it. Well, I'm too tired. It's those kids again, right? Just too exhausted from work. I'm really not equipped. If uh, the church would give me some seminars, after the seminars, then I'll be equipped to, to love my neighbor. Or I'm just not gifted that way. You extroverts. I'm an introvert. This is, a, this is really uncomfortable for me. Why? Whatever your excuse is, whatever means you which you try to justify yourself, it doesn't matter what it is. I'm not picking on extroverts. I'm not picking on people with kids. This is all of us. Do you feel those excuses coming? Why do they come? Why do we feel the need to justify ourselves? Because we know that we don't live up to what we're called to do. What does that look like for you? Maybe take a minute. If you have your sermon series guide, write that question down and think about this week as you go. What does it look like? How do those justifications sound in your head, coming out of your mouth? What are those excuses? And when do they happen? Then there's some of us who get asked that question, what about, uh, how, how are you doing with loving your neighbor? And, oh, well, let me tell you, because I'm doing awesome, right? We feel, we feel a little confident, a little, little self-righteous even. Actually, we're ready to move on to a new series, aren't we? Because I think I've got this figured out. what's amazing is Jesus doesn't let the self-righteous have that position long. Because the call isn't, hey, love some of your neighbors, a few more of them, a little bit more than you used to. Right? That's not the command here. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I don't think there's anyone in this room that is delusional enough to believe that they are actively engaging and loving their neighbor with as much energy and passion and joy and eagerness with the same amount of resources as which they're meeting their own needs, right? None of us are willing to say that. Romans 3 describes this, and now whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced. So the whole world is held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. No one is declared right before God by their proudness, their self-righteousness in their obedience. But rather, it's by the law that we become conscious. We become aware of this. It becomes a mirror at which we look in, and we see that our face is covered in dirt. Jesus is putting all of us, whether you're self-righteous or self-condemning, he's putting all of us in a place that we realize we cannot measure up to God's standard. I want to show you one other place, Matthew 19. If you have your scripture, I invite you to turn there with me. Starting in verse 16, I want to show you another story that is very similar to the one we've been studying for the, for the past several weeks. Starting in verse 16, Matthew 19, again, starting verse 16. 
going to sound very similar to the one we've been in for a while. Verse 16, just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones? He inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All these are neighboring commands, right? And he sums it up with, and love your neighbor as yourself. All of these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? And again, Jesus, in his love, is not okay with this man or with us believing a lie that that is true. And so he pushes in, again, lovingly exposing this man's heart. He says, you're feeling really good. I want to show you what's on the inside. Let's come back to reality here. He says, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go and sell your possessions and give them to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. The young man heard this and he went away sad because he had great wealth. It's nearly an exact replay of the whole story we just studied, right? Jesus exposes his heart, but this man finds himself without excuse and he goes away sad. This isn't like, oh, sad face emoji sad. This is like grieving sorrow sad. It's the same root word that, Je- that is used to describe Jesus at the, ga- at the Garden of Gethsemane when he sees the cross coming. He's overwhelmed with sorrow. This man is in despair. Why is he in despair? Because the answer to his question, how do I inherit eternal life, if it's rooted in his obedience, if it's rooted in his ability to love his neighbor as himself, he's hopeless and he knows it. And so he walks away with his head hung low. And that's what happens whenever we measure ourselves against the holiness of God, the law of God, not another human. It doesn't matter how much you love God, you fail to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It doesn't matter how kind you are to your neighbors, you're not loving them as you love yourself. So it seems like there's only two options. One is to go away with your head hung low in despair or to start rattling off excuses. Jesus' disciples are watching this whole thing, and verse 25 says, when the disciples heard this, they were astonished. They said, well, then who can be saved? They get it, don't they? It's impossible. Do you ever read a book or watch a show or a movie, and you just think, I'm pretty sure I could do better than that? that's not a really good way to end that show or that book or whatever, that story. I just want to rewrite the story at the end. It's kind of how I feel in this, both of these stories. How, how should these stories have ended? Not in despair with hung, head hung low. Not even in self-justifying, but what it should have happened. Instead of justifying himself, he should have humbled himself and fallen to his knees in front of Jesus and said, God, have mercy on me. If this is what's required, are you kidding me? Not me. Lord, I'm pleading for mercy. If what is required for eternal life is that a man keeps the law perfectly, the entire thing, every single time, then who can be saved? The answer is no one except one. 
There was one man who loved the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, mind, and strength. There's one man who loved his neighbor as himself. There's one man who even at the very end, even to the very end, continued forward in obedience, rooted in his love for God, and who even though he knew it would cost him his entire life, loved his neighbor unto death. And Jesus is really the only one who could stand up on this cosmic witness stand on trial before God, read Psalm 15, like we just read earlier, and say, hey, who can dwell in your tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? The one who's righteous, the one who's blameless, the one who, and carry on. He's the only one who could have read that thing and said, I can live there. What's required of eternal life? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor? I inherit eternal life. But Jesus was hated, and he was arrested in secret, and people were paid to bring out false testimony against him, essentially accusing him of not loving God and not loving his neighbor. But rather than being declared righteous on this court, in this trial, rather than being validated and vindicated and receiving eternal life which he has earned, this crowd condemned him to die, and they cried out, crucify him. He was put on trial, not by God, but by humans, by lawbreakers. And the only one deserving of eternal life was sentenced to die. And the Bible describes him as being silent through that, in the way that Isaiah 53 describes. He was silent like a lamb being led to the slaughter said nothing in his own defense. Why? Because he was, he was really guilty and he knew it and he just didn't have a defense? No. The Bible says that at any moment he could have called on his father and his father would have sent thousands and millions of angels to defend him and to, and to defend his innocence, to prove him. So why was he silent? He was silent because he was interested in something more than him living on God's holy mountain in his tent. He was interested in something more than just him receiving eternal life. He wanted you to receive it as well. He wanted me, he wanted us lawbreakers to receive mercy and grace. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that the mystery of this moment of what happens at the cross is that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus was found guilty of failing to love the Lord and failing to love his neighbor so that by faith in him, somehow we are seen as those who fully love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor perfectly. It's grace. He was delivered over for our sins, and the good news is, is that he was raised for our justification. And on the third day, he was raised to life, receiving what he earned by his love, validated by the Father, so that by faith, we are united with him. And the way that we are justified is not by our achieving obedience to the law or failing, by loving our neighbor or not loving our neighbor, even by loving God or not loving God. But you and I are justified by the life of Jesus, not by our obedience to his teaching, which is why every single week we come back together and we rehearse the story of Christ, that he came, he lived the perfect life, that he died a death that he didn't deserve as a sacrifice, as a willing substitute for us, 
and he was raised to life so that by that story, we are justified. And here's why that's so important. It's more than just a one-time deal, but it goes throughout all of life. Because the gospel, the good news, silences the voice of self-righteousness and the voice of self-condemnation. Both of those voices say the exact same thing. And they say, you are what you do. God's love for you is dependent on your obedience. Your maintaining God's love is dependent on your obedience. So here's what self-righteousness sounds like. Self-righteousness sounds like this. Hey, you did pretty good. So you are good. You're loving your neighbor really well. God must be really proud of you. He must love you more. Way to go, bud. You earned it. Good job. Problem is the gospel silences that. Paul describes how it silences. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. He says, I don't care if I feel good about myself. I don't care how self-righteous I may see myself. That is not what makes me innocent. It's the Lord who does, and the Lord does this on the basis of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is my hope. It's a call to humility, to repent, to turn from your self-righteousness and to turn to Christ and say, Jesus, it's because of you and you alone. And here's what self-condemnation sounds like. For many of us, this is a very, very loud voice. It says something like this, you failed again, so you're a failure. God doesn't really love you, or he at least doesn't love you as much as he would if you were a little better. The gospel silences that voice as well. You heard this verse earlier, 1 John 3, 19 to 20. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how our hearts and how we set our hearts at peace, at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, even if our own hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Even when you are super aware of your failures, even when your own heart condemns you, Jesus is greater than that. You are not made right with God. You do not maintain your witness with God based on your obedience or your failure. Because here's the truth. Today, this week, you will hear one of or probably both of those voices all week. Which is why we continue to come back to Christ We continue to preach the gospel to ourselves again and again and again, and we remind ourselves of the good news, and we repent, meaning we turn to Jesus again. We turn to him from our self-righteousness. We turn to him from our self-condemnation. We say, it's not about me and my performance, Jesus. It's about what you have done and what you have given to me by grace. That is what I stand. That is what I hold. One of the ways, we've been doing this all morning with song, right? being reminded in song. Another song that that captures this idea, one of my favorites, is Before the Throne of God Above. Many of you know this song. The verse says this, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, when he tells me all the places that I failed to love my neighbor, and they're true, I don't turn in despair and I don't rattle off excuses and justify myself. Instead, upward I look and I see him there. I see Christ. I look to Christ. I repent. 
Because he is the one who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. Because God the just is satisfied to look on him and to pardon me. Praise God for that truth. You see, this passage has a lot of different strategies. A lot of good ideas as to how to love our neighbor. But what if the point of this passage, what if the point of the Bible, what if the point of the Christian life is not actually to be a better neighbor? What if it's bigger than that? What if it's actually to experience and to know the love of the better neighbor and to grow in love for him and dependence on him more and more and more and to continue to turn in our need to Christ and to know his presence with us? What if that's the goal? And neighboring, loving your neighbor becomes a byproduct becomes a result of being with Jesus. Because the more you're with Jesus, the more you begin to look like Jesus. The more you experience Jesus' love, the more his love awakens love inside of you in response to him. And that love now has this desire to obey, this desire to love my neighbor now. So wherever you are this morning, are you feeling like you're still trying to impress Jesus with your your obedience. Turn to Jesus. He's done it for you already. God's not more or less impressed by you. Maybe you're actually in despair because you know you have absolutely nothing to offer to Jesus. It's actually a really good place to be. Not the despair part, but the empty hands. And we turn to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I have nothing to bring. And he says, I know. I've done it for you. I've fulfilled the law. Maybe this morning you're resting in Christ for your hope of being right with God, but you feel like you need to go and love your neighbor on your own and you're not, depending, you're not finding yourself returning to Christ on a regular basis. Then the call is again this morning, return to Christ. Maybe that's where you are and you know how sweet it is and you want more. The answer is all the same turn to Christ, whether you've been a, whether you've been a Christian for a hundred years or you're still, still got all kinds of questions and, and you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. No matter where you are, the answer is the same. Turn again to Christ over and over and over again. Come and be transformed. Experience his love and let it transform you and make you what he has called you to be. Grow into that. To paraphrase the famous words of Jack Miller, cheer up, you're worse than you think. But in Christ, you're more loved than you could ever imagine. Let me pray for us. Jesus, our hope is in you. You alone fulfilled the law that we never could, that we cannot. So by your good news, Lord, would you extinguish the voice? Would you silence the voice of self-righteousness in which we feel like you owe us something? Would you humble us? Would you silence the voice of self-condemnation that says there's no possible way you could love us because we failed? And would you remind us that your love for us, that our righteousness, that our, our goodness, our, our inheritance of eternal life, our, pres- our, our living in your tent on your mountain with you, our presence with you, your presence with us is not dependent on our ability or inability to fulfill what you've called us to, but it's on Christ. Jesus, our hope is in you. Make us Change us, transform us by that love into people who go and do what we have experienced. We go and do likewise. 
eager to love a world in desperate need. And Jesus, we pray that for your glory. We pray that for our joy and for our good and for the good of our neighbors. In Christ's name, amen.